Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Eddie McDonald, music pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Eddie for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Hallelujah. Let all creation stand and sing. Hallelujah. Fill the earth with songs of worship. Tell the wonders of creation's king. Thank you, Rosemary. Um, man, what a, what a wonderful song selection John brought us through this morning and just preparing our hearts to hear God's word. Um, I, I, uh, I noticed, and I hope some of you did, and um, not to embarrass her, but it is good to have Lily back with us this morning. Amen? Um, so praise the Lord for that. If you would, um, continue uh, to be praying for the Vogeltans family and for Pam's mom. I know they would greatly appreciate it. Um, Psalm 19 is where we're going, and you see that in your notes this morning, and I am uh, incredibly thankful um, for the privilege, although um, if you up up here um, looking closely, you'd see my knees knocking a little bit, um, so I greatly appreciate our pastor and all that he does to prepare um, to feed us at this spiritual table. Are you thankful for Pastor Danny? Say amen. Amen. That's right. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm grateful for him, and I'm thankful for this opportunity, and I hope that our time together in God's word this morning will be profitable for all of us. And I, I have to tell you, um, I, I want to echo our, um, a brother of ours and on, on the West Coast, John MacArthur, said once that um, his one regret in ministry is the fact that his parishioners don't get the same time allotted in the word like he does in preparing. And I have to amen that. Um, just to, it, for those of you that are teachers or have spent time doing any kind of Bible study for you uh, VBS um, teachers this past uh, week, a uh, couple weeks, we've been preparing and you've been studying. And so it's something uh, incredible. And, and my hope and prayer is that after today, you won't just take my word for what is said, that you'll be like a good Berean. You'll go back and see if these things are in fact so, and that you'll study the word and dig in even deeper. Um, just in, in, in um, and by way of introduction, um, Chuck Colson, who um, you may better know for his prison ministries, wrote a book with Nancy Piercy entitled, How Now Shall We Live? And basically in this book, um, uh, Chuck lays out a, a clarion call to Christians to have shored up in their minds a biblical worldview. Every single person who walks the planet has a worldview. Everybody has a lens through which they're viewing the reality that's around them. And that lens either allows them to see clearly or see things as they are not, um, which is unfortunate. And what he's setting up for us in the introduction of this book, highly recommend it, though towards the end there's a couple things I would disagree with our brother on. But he basically says, up that every single person answers these three questions. Every worldview answers these questions in some way, shape, or form. First, how did we get here? Second, what's wrong with the world? And third, how do we fix it? 
how did we get here? What's wrong with the world? And how do we fix it? Every single worldview answers this question. Even people who say, I don't believe in anything, you have an answer for this in some manner, shape, or form, and that frames how you live your life. The first question is what we're gonna actually be tackling today in our text. How did we get here? Which ultimately, essentially answers this question. It's in your notes. Is there a God? How you answer, how I answer this question frames everything else in our lives. Because it's our theology that sets up our philosophy of life, of why I do what I do. And it sets up our ethics of how we determine what's right and wrong. It sets up everything and how we interact with individuals, how we view authority. Everything in our life starts at this initial question, is there a God? Now, in my estimation, there's really only two ways of answering this. At least that's what scripture says. One is no, right? No, there's no God. And, and the psalmist answers this question for the person that says no to, to this question, right? Psalm 14, ones, that the fool says in his heart, there is what? No God, right? And the word fool, we're gonna look at this a little bit later on, but this has moral implications for us, not intellectual. We'll see that in a second. But then the second answer to that is yes. You say, well, wait a minute, what about the I don't knows? Well, scripture leans into this pretty quickly to saying that every person acknowledges that there's a God. We'll talk about that in greater detail because that in essence is the thrust of Psalm 19. So assuming that it's either no or yes, the yes, how do we know is the question. How do you know that there's a God? How do you, how, do, how in knowing that there's a God, how does he reveal that to us? And Psalm 19 answers this question. You should be there already. So let's read what King David has to say to us through inspiration of the Spirit. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless 
and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A song of revelation. Will you pray with me? Father, let me say no more than what your word says, nor neglect to say what your word proclaims. Father, I pray this for all of us, that our words and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in your notes, um, I have there for you um, two things, ultimately, that, um, that we are going to discover in our text today. And the first that uh, David reveals to us of how, how God reveals himself to us, to the world, and that first is that God reveals himself generally in the world. And what we mean by that is that he reveals to us himself in creation. So look at it with me there, verse one. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Of all the things that creation does, this is the single greatest calling. From the microscopic mitochondria that's swimming around in your body, you're like, I really don't need to hear that. But it's a good thing, it's the powerhouse to the cell and we're excited that it's in there, woohoo! Because otherwise we're dead, right? Um, from that to the largest star in the furthest galaxy, all of creation has been created to give glory to God. All of it, that is its purpose. That is your purpose. The ancients asked this question, you've heard this from this pulpit, you've heard it in teaching elsewhere. What is the chief end of man? Anybody know? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, or I like to say, as John Piper does, by enjoying him forever. And of course, scripture bears this out, right? First Corinthians chapter 10, 31, if you wanna jot that in your notes. So whether you eat or drink or whatever, Whatever you do, whatever. Now, don't engage your middle schooler, but yes, even that too. Whatever you're doing, you're doing to the glory of God. Everything. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, the crown of creation, we have the privilege of bearing God's image made in his likeness, like no other part of creation, and don't miss the command, as we think, as we speak, as we do, we are to reflect him. And so, obviously, this declaration that, that David is giving to us, this, this proclamation of the sky of the heavens, is not in literal form. We're not out there with, with you know, our ears bent to the sky, listening for some, some word, but it's metaphorical and announcing the glory of the one who created everything. Just like the song we just heard. David continues, look at verse two. Day to day, pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's this consistency in creation over and over and over again. And note this, 
Creation never tires of it. Do you get tired of praising God? Understand, I'm getting shellacked with you. My feet are a little bruised. You get tired of praising God. Creation never tires. Day to day, constantly, he says. There is no speech, nor are there words, verse three, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Brothers and sisters, the magnitude of the creative power of God is certainly not lost on the one who has eyes to see. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah in 32, 17. He says this, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. I love this. Listen to this. Nothing is too hard for you. Do you believe that? Say amen. Say it with me. Nothing is too hard for you. Say it to him. Nothing is too hard for you. Say it again. Nothing is too hard for you. I think we need to preach that truth to ourselves, brothers and sisters. Let me give you some crazy facts, okay? Fun facts. Consider Niagara Falls. Anybody been there, Niagara Falls? Isn't it powerful? Beautiful, right? Listen to this. This is according to their official website. More than six million cubic feet. That's too many zeros. I'm already lost. More than six million cubic feet of water go over the crest line of the falls every minute during peak daytime tourist hours. According to NiagaraFrontier.com, quote, the Niagara generating stations supply one quarter of all power used in New York State, note the, the whole state, not just the city, and Ontario. That's astounding. And that's just one fall on God's created earth, right? And, and, and of all of that, consider this, the power of the ocean. Yam, uh, the young adult ministry, looking forward to our beach retreat in a couple weeks. Woo! Right? We're going to be there at the ocean. And so let's wrap our minds around this, young adults and those that have opportunity to go, right, uh, to the ocean. Listen to this. Um, this is uh, by Mariette Di Cristina in her article, Sea Power. She's writing for the Smithsonian. She writes this, quote, the world's largest solar collector absorbs an awesome amount of the sun's energy. Watch this. Equal to 37 trillion kilowatts annually or, just try to wrap your mind around this, 4,000 times the amount of electricity used by all humans on the planet. That's just the surface of the ocean. Are you kidding me? Now, some, some of you are like, nah. I, I'm, I'm begging you, just wrap your mind around that one small fact. We've only looked at ter- these two elements of tremendous power displayed in God's creation on planet Earth. And we have not even scratched the surface of the surface to God's creative power on display in the cosmos. David is not done because if you turn, if you hold your hand there and go back to Psalm 8, listen to this. This is Psalm 8, verses three through four. So David writes this. When I look at your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, we can, David didn't have all of these facts and figures that I threw your way, but what he did have is what you and I have. And stepping out into the, into the, into the night and looking up at the night sky and looking at the, the, the heavenly array and just being in awe and feeling in that moment really, really small. Please don't miss this. Because that's at that perfect moment when he then yielded in humility, says, what am I? What am I? I'm nothing in compared to this. And yet, he pours out his favor on you. Right? J Jesus even reminds us that it rains on the, on the just and the unjust. His mercy is boundless. His grace unfathomable. And yet, it's there for each one of us. Isn't God good? Any good? And so, so I just want, this morning, what I want you to do is in thinking about this and wrapping your mind and, and going back to that, God, as Jeremiah said, nothing is too hard for you. And if you forget that in the moment of your trial and whatever's going on in your life, I don't know what you brought in here, but I know this, that the God of heaven sees all, just like it says here in Psalm 19, right? And we're gonna see this in just a second, a comparison of the sun with the, the S-U-N with the S-O-N that he misses nothing in your life and nothing is too hard for him. That's good news. That's good news. Consider Colossians 1, 15 through 17. We've looked at this in our, our, our previous study not too long ago in Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 7 Paul writes this, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Here's the takeaway. Here's the takeaway, and it's in your notes. It's simply this. We serve, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are blood-bought, we serve in everywhere at all times at once, all-knowing, all-powerful God whose very attributes, here it is, don't miss this, command glory and praise. They command glory and praise. And remember, Paul explains this in Philippians 2, right? It's, I put the reference there in your notes, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will. Everyone will. Here's the beauty is that God lets us in on that. He invites us into that. And the, the prequel to understanding that is his creation that surrounds us all over. We just step out 
God, are you there? And we look around us and see his creative power declaring to us, I am, I am. And nothing is too hard for me. Well, David continues, look at the end of verse four. In them, he writes, he has set a tent for the sun. In the heavens, he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and it's circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Let me ask all the husbands here. How many of you on your wedding day just couldn't wait to get to the church? This is your moment to say, I couldn't wait. Thank you, amen. Nothing was going to stop you. Man, I get to marry my girl. We get to be one. It's going to be awesome. I'm not hearing any amens. This is your moment. Guys, you're going to, okay, wives, I tried. I'm, you're going to have to have a talk when you get home. So David continues to use his imagery here, right? He compares the son to a bridegroom leaving the marriage pavilion and coming out, watch this, to claim his bride. Oh, I love it. I love it. It speaks of, don't miss this, pursuant love. Pursuant love and anticipation. I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh, husbands and wives, oh, that God would fire within us the ability to keep that fire alive, amen? Amen, amen, yeah. It's grace, grace, not just, not just on that wedding day. No, we're not preparing for a day, you're preparing for a lifetime, right? Well, not only that, that the, David is not only reminded of a bridegroom who can't wait to be, to, to be with his bride, but then also, look at it, it says that he, he's reminded of a strong man. In other words, the strong man is determined. He's powerful, right? And, and in these summer days, I think this is probably fitting, right? Because man, talk about a powerful son. Oh, bring fall and winter, amen? And some of you are like, I hate snow, no. Um, both, here's what I don't want you to miss. In both of these illustrations that Paul, or that David is bringing us to, both of these are unwavering in their purpose. The strong man and the bridegroom. Both will accomplish what they've set out to do. The bridegroom will be with his bride. The strong man will accomplish his purposes. And both of them are rejoicing in their love and their power. You already know where we're going with this. This is a picture of God himself. Follow me. God is in the habit of using many, many things, including his creation, to foreshadow or point to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Ephesians chapter 5, right, we see this where, where Paul explains to us that marriage is that illustration that God has given to the world, has instituted to be a picture of Christ and his bride. So he says to husbands, Husbands, love your bride. How? As Christ loved the church. Whoa, 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 wait. He loved her unto death. You got it. Totally, sacrificially, and nothing got in the way of his purposes. Isn't that good? 
Isn't that good? God is saying that creation is pointing there. Your marriage is pointing there. I love how God has instituted into his creation all of these markers that constantly are pointing to him. Hold on to that. So just like that, this is a foreshadowing in nature of God. And here it is in your notes. Christ is the bridegroom. Christ is the bridegroom. He is the, as Malachi 4.2 says, the son of righteousness who has victoriously risen from the dead to one day soon claim his bride, the church. The bridegroom is coming, amen? He's coming. And this is what I don't want you to miss. The next time you start kind of doing this, fanning yourself saying, oh, can't wait for the, for the, for the, 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 the winter months to come, the fall months to come. Let me just remind you that when you see that sun, rather than bemoaning it, let it remind you of God's power. Let it remind you of, of his commitment that he is pursuant of you and he's coming to claim you. That's good news. That's good news. And God has baked that, if you will, into his creation. How did he, Jesus Christ, win that bride? He won us on the cross. The son is a picture of Jesus then who claims his bride. He demonstrated his love for us on the cross, Romans chapter 5, 8. And he anticipates his return, right? We saw this in our Revelation study in Revelation 22, 12 through 13. He is coming. And Christ is the only strong man who could victoriously determine to face the cross for you and me. As the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. Hebrews 12, 2. And you know what? Every Christmas, we get to sing of our bridegroom. We get to sing of the bridegroom and the, and the, and the victory that is, that is his that extends to us in him. Yeah, some of you know this, every Christmas... I, uh, full disclosure, you're going to hear it again when Christmas rolls around. I love the carols, a lot of the carols, because in that is the very gospel itself. In fact, we get this reference in Malachi and in one of them. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Philippians chapter 2. Born that man no more may die. John 3.16 Born to raise the sons of earth Born to give them second birth Sing with me Hark the herald angels sing Glory to the newborn king I love it. We were challenged by Pastor Danny to be singing the songs of the faith and you know what? Just as we preach that truth to us from God's word. We sing truth to us from God's word as well. I mean, little, little aside here, the little persnicketiness of your music pastor. Um, that was verse two. 
And have you noticed, maybe you grew up uh, in church and they always, you know, they had to shorten things. And so they're like, oh, let's just sing the first and the last verse. Have you noticed that some of the richest theologies in verse two, don't skip over verse two. Okay, I'm done. So God has revealed himself in his creation and all people have access to this creation. In fact, before we move on from this first section, look back again at verse four. David writes, their voice has gone, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, it's interesting. Paul actually quotes from this psalm um, in Romans chapter 10, verse 18. And the context there is he's asking this question, right? That, uh, and you, you, you're familiar with this passage because when we're sharing the gospel, oftentimes we'll go there. You know, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Paul writes in chapter 10. And, and, and then he's asking this question. Wait, wait, wait. Has everybody heard and the question there in, in chapters nine through, nine through 11 in Romans is this question of, has, has God forgotten his chosen people, the Jews? I mean, we get up to the celebratory thing and uh, declaration in, in chapter eight that, oh man, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the question, but what about the Jews? Has he forgotten them? Resounding no, and then he quotes Psalm 19. Why? Because he says, basically in essence, no, because they knew already. How did they know, Paul? They had it all around them. You see, Romans 1.20 echoes the same sentiments as Psalms 1, uh, Psalm 19, one through six. You know this passage. For his, that is God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without what? Excuse. Remember we started at the very beginning um, this morning with Psalm 14.1 that the fool says in his heart there is no God. Listen, the fool is not one because he's intellectually deficient. There are a whole lot of guys and gals out there way, way smarter than me, way, way smarter than you, that know a whole lot about creation. And yet, because of their suppression, suppressing of this declaration of God's glory, they do so in unrighteousness. In other words, all creation is declaring this statement that God is to be glorified and they suppress that truth. I think of, of, of movers and shakers in the scientific world like Richard Dawkins, who, who himself acknowledges that when you're looking at creation, it looks designed. He even acknowledges this. Isn't it fascinating that this guy who has all the evidence before him, he can actually see the fingerprints of God and then in the same breath squashes that truth in his own unrighteousness. It's all around us, brothers and sisters. And understand this, that the skeptics 
will end up bearing the fruit of that seed that they plant. And in fact, I would argue this, that if you look at even the American culture that we're in right now in the 21st century, we're seeing the fruit of that suppression of truth all around us. Please don't miss this though. Those that have the voice to declare should be the bride. And I wonder sometimes if the bride is quiet, allowing the rest of creation to shout forth. David says in Psalm 139, 13 through 16, listen to this, this is familiar. We usually spend a little bit of time of this every January as we celebrate um, the sanctity of, of human life. David writes this, so, so we've been marveling at the outer verse, um, uh, the outer space, if you will. Uh, now he moves into the inner space. Verse 13 of Psalm 139, he, he begins, for you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, at when as yet there was none of them. You get a real sense, I think, of King David just being in absolute awe of God's created outer space and inner space. The furthest reaches to the fact that he created me. And this declaration of awe and wonder and giving glory and praise to God, brothers and sisters, that's our job. But you know what? I think sometimes there's a disconnect. And so as we close this portion of Psalm 19, I just wanna challenge you. Is there a disconnect from the glory that truly, the, 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 the amazing wonder of you as a created being in the image of God and the glory that your lifestyle should also give to the Lord. Do, do you see what I've done there? You see, see what the word is doing? Already we marvel, already we give praise because wow, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. But how are you using that fearful and wonderful life of yours in light of his glory and praise? That's what this does. Now, now watch this, because I, I love it. There's a, there's a pivot that's gonna happen, but before we, we move on, if, if, I'm, if I'm looking at this and I, I'm in, in awe and wonder, I'm like, wow, truly there's a God. Truly, there are, his fingerprints are all over the place, including all over me, then there's a pivot. So if he's revealed himself in all of creation, how do I know him specifically, or if you will, specially? And that's where we go in the second part of Psalm 19, and it's there in your notes, God reveals himself specially in the word, or if you will, in his commandments. So there are three things that we're gonna see in the second passage, and we'll move through them quickly. Um, the attributes of God's word, an appreciation of God's word, and the application of God's word. So let's first look at the attributes of, God word, of God's word. Um, David continues, he says that the law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let's unpack that real quick, okay? So, so the first word that God uses to describe his word is perfect. Perfect, so that's what you're gonna write there in your blank. The description is, God's word is perfect, so what does God's word accomplish in its perfection? Well, this is what you're gonna write in the, the next blank next to it. It revives the soul, revives the soul. In other words, brothers and sisters, God's word cannot be improved upon. It's perfect, right? Consider this, God's love, for example. God loves you perfectly. So you can do nothing more to make him love you more and nothing that you do that falls short of his glory is gonna cause him to love you anything less than his love. He loves you perfectly. Wrapping your mind around that is huge in your journey of faith. So adding to God's word is no better than the Pharisees and taking away no better than the pagan Gentiles. In Romans 7, 12 through 14, Paul reaffirms the goodness and the rightness of God's word, right? Because he, he is asking questions as he can imagine his critics asking him, well, is there something wrong with the word then, Paul? Absolutely not, he says. I, I like the way um, J. Vernon McGee puts it. He says this, I can hear his southern drawl in the back of my head. <laughs> Quote, there is nothing wrong with the law, but it is an administration of death to us because there is something radically wrong with us. I'm just gonna go ahead and say an amen for Eddie McDonald. Um, the law, he continues, was given to show us that we are sinners before God. The law is perfect, end quote. Now, Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God, the word of Christ. Please note then that revival doesn't come apart from God's word. Oh, I just wish the Lord would do something in my life. I wish things would get right and be fixed. And my question to you would be, are you in his perfect word? Are there things, as you look at God's standard, and his standard is his son, Jesus Christ, and you look at your life, obviously you're gonna see a deficiency. So how, where are you going to make up for that deficiency? And I'm telling you that if we are not going to the word of God, then you are going to apply it to an empty well, an empty cistern. Only the perfect word of God will revive our soul. Secondly, he says, and in, in the, the psalmist says, King David says that the word of God is sure. That's your second blank, sure. And what does it accomplish? It makes the simple wise. Now, this word sure means to stand firm or be established, um, made firm, sure, or lasting. Watch this. God's word is not going to change to please the passing whims of humanity's moral decay. It's not going to happen. No matter what laws are passed in Washington, D.C. That, that are contrary to God's word, God's word will not bend. That's good news, isn't it? 
That also, before we get on our high horse, includes your own personal life when occasionally you wish God's word would kind of wink at the things that you do that you shouldn't do or don't do that you should do. It is unbending. And as James says, if you've broken one part of the law, what? You've broken the whole thing. And there is our desperate need of a savior. Well, what may be right yesterday can be declared wrong tomorrow, but God's word isn't gonna budge. And if you wanna be sure-footed in your decisions, watch this, if you want your decisions to be firmly established as wise, then know God's word. Hide it in your heart. Memorize it. Get around people who know God's word and, and speak God's word and do God's word and think God's word. I'm reminded of something I think Pastor Danny has mentioned before. His, his favorite author um, or one of his favorite authors, Charles, uh, 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 John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, right? He, he um, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon says of Bunyan, prick him anywhere and he bleeds bibbling. I love that. In other words, in other words, are you the sort of person that if we get to talking within about 10 minutes, God's word has already been woven into our conversation in some way? Now, I'm not talking like lofty, look down your spiritual nose and hey, if only you could walk with Jesus like me. Yes. I'm not talking that. I'm just talking the natural course, the humility of your awe and wonder of the King of Kings. And it can't help but just come out. That's what I'm talking about. That's wise living as it's woven through your life. Well, thirdly, God's word is right. Write that in your, in your, uh, in your blank there. And what does it accomplish? God's the right word, it causes my heart to rejoice. It causes your heart to rejoice. Right means correct or pleasing. Now, you may not like what God's word says, but I can tell you one thing, God likes what his word says. It rejoices him. So it's his universe, right? He gets to make the rules. I, I kind of like what Francis Chan says about it. And if you don't like it, make your own universe. <laughs> um, a little snarky there. But uh, ultimately, this is, this is where we're going. Um, in this, because God made it and made the rules to govern it, it really is foolish for us to seek to alter his right word. In fact, true rejoicing, true joy in your life will not actually come apart from God's word. I've said this before, perhaps um, from here, and I, I know I've said it in, in, in the yam and other um, lessons that I've taught, um, there is a danger for all of us as Christians to be found like Corinthians, Corinthian Christians. And the way I like to describe that as was described to me is Corinthian Christians are those Christians that are straddling the fence. In other words, on the one hand, they know enough um, of, they, they are walking in sin, right? They're walking in sin and yet they know God's word and so the joy that they would get from sin, they don't really get. And then on the other hand, because they're walking in sin and they know God's word, they can't really enjoy God's word because why? Well, they're walking in sin. 
if you meet these sorts of Christians, they are the most miserable people on planet Earth, I think, because they're stuck. They know better, right? The joy that should be theirs in living God's word isn't theirs because they're, well, not living God's word. And so my, my call to you would be this, is that are you doing that? At each one of these stops along the way, hopefully you've seen this, is, is the question that should be coming to our minds and hearts. Am I doing this? Is God's word a reality like this in my life? Is it perfect in my life? Is it, is it reviving my soul? Is it making me wise? Is it causing my heart to rejoice? Um, I think that both the physical laws of the universe and the moral laws of the universe, as we look at this, right, they're, they're always governing, aren't they? And the law of the harvest applies to both of us. So that, watch this, when the, when the fruit of a righteous life is harvested, man, is there rejoicing. And some of you have seen this in your life. You've actually, some of you have, um, uh, with, with bittersweetness, been able to grieve as those who have hope because you buried a loved one who walked with the Lord and the harvest of a righteous life lived is evident to everybody. Isn't that good? Isn't that, what, what a joy to be in those moments. And it is bittersweet because we're mourning, we're grieving for us, but we're rejoicing with them because they are in the presence of the King. Hallelujah. But so depressing is to be in those places where you know they did not live one second for the king. Or you're squinting really hard and hoping upon hope that maybe they trusted in Christ. I think, I hope, maybe, but I didn't really see a lot of wisdom there. And there certainly wasn't any rejoicing in the Lord. And for those, I think of that song from several decades ago, Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoons, Little Boy Blue and the Man in the Moon. When you coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. And remember, the, 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 the lyricist realizes, oh my goodness, my son has become just like me. I sowed those seeds. Now the good news for us and if you are looking at, at the harvest of a life in the past, I just want to remind you because you may be feeling a little bit low in that moment. And I remind you that we serve, we serve a king who is called Redeemer. He buys back the years the locusts have eaten. And as we walk in Christ, the, the, the clarion call is to repentance, right? To turn from our sin, to walk in newness of life. And in that, if we confess, with, if we confess our sin, God is what? He's faithful and just to, to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So good news for you, for me. In Christ, there is a new beginning. I would just call to you and say, stop now lest you continue to plant seeds that lead to a harvest of bitterness. Instead, plant seeds that yield joy in the Lord. Well, David's not finished. He also says, this is number four, that the word is pure. The word is pure. And what does it accomplish? It opens the eyes of our hearts. 
It opens the eyes of my heart. Pure means clear or sincere, clean. In other words, how can I see clearly? It's through the word. This is, this is how I see the world as it truly is. It allows me to see things as they really are in this world that God has created. The word, I, I like what um, uh, Pastor John Corson, this pastor out on the West Coast, says about this. Listen to what he says, quote, when my kids were little, we had a three-foot wading pool in the backyard. After all the neighborhood kids came in for a swim, the water would be so cloudy that I couldn't even see the bottom. So I would empty it out, patch the holes and fill it up, and then it would be crystal clear once again. That's what the word does. It's pure and allows us to get to the bottom of things, to see clearly. The enemy wants things to be murky, for us to, to not understand what's going on in the world around us. And if you want to better understand what's going, around, going on around us, if you want to better understand how God sees the world, you got to get in the Word. You got to get in the Word. That allows us to see clearly. Number five, the Word is clean. It's clean. And what does it accomplish? It endures forever. Now, clean means pure or clean. It or, and this is in a moral or ethic, um, ethical way, the word cleanses you and me. So in Psalm 119.9, the psalmist asks, how shall a young man cleanse his way? And then he responds by taking heed to the word. A little later on in Psalm 119, verse 105, it states, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you, sin against thee. And in Ephesians 5, 26, Paul tells us that we, the church, are washed by the water of the word. That's what God's word does in you and does in my life. And, and it brings about a cleansing within us. When's the last time you had a good bath? <laughs> Spiritually speaking, hopefully you came showered and washed. You know, it's a, it's a practice versus position thing. So on the one hand, we have already been declared righteous. The moment you trusted in Christ, you were declared holy, right? Declared separate, declared perfect. That's your position in Christ, but your practice in Christ, well, that's the part that's being worked on, right? So I do things that don't reflect my position in Christ. I, I'm perfect in Christ, that's my position, but my practice is less than perfect. I'm holy in Christ, that's my position, but I don't practice holiness. And every day that I walk in Christ, that's what's supposed to happen in us, is that every day my practice is supposed to match my position. And how does that happen, brothers and sisters? by his word in you and me. I love it. What God's word does in our life brings about this cleansing and it endures forever. Listen to Jesus' own words. This is John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. John 10, 27 through 30. Jesus writes this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish.
perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, and it does, then just as sure as his word endures forever, so too will those who have by the same word and trusted in Christ endure as well. And that's good news. Brothers and sisters, if you come to a place in your journey where you're wondering, Lord, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. He declares over you, yes, you will. Because I will see you through. That's the God we serve. Sixth and lastly, God's word is true and watch it. What does it accomplish? It is righteous altogether. True means sure. It means reliable. They are completely right. All that God does is right. Thus, his word is no different. And if we were to just take a quick action point here of, okay, so what do I do with all these descriptors and what it accomplishes in my life? How do I view the word? That's, that's the question that I have for you. Do you view God's word in the light, the same light that King David gives to us here in Psalm 19? Do I view it that way? Can I not wait to get to it because this is where wisdom is going to be? Or if I'm lacking in joy, I need joy in my life. Where should I go? Oh, I need to go to God's word. Am I falling short in righteous, right living? Well, where do I go to know how to live rightly? I go to God's word. If you were to describe it, would you use the same descriptors as King David of God's word? Is that where you're at in your walk? And if you're not, here's my, my call to you. What I believe God's call to you from his word is, is get that right today. If I'm viewing time with God and his word as, a, as, as, as oh, I gotta do that. No, no, no. I wanna have a heart that says, I get to do that. Then just cry out to God. Look, you're not surprising him. Lord, I'm just struggling to get into your word today. <gasps> He's not doing that. He already knew. So be honest with him. Be honest with yourself. Jeremiah reminds us of this, right? That the heart is desperately wicked. We deceive ourselves. Stop deceiving yourself. If you're struggling, call yourself out on it. Lay yourself at the foot of the cross and say, Lord God, I can't, but you promised me that you can through me. And I'm crying out to you. Help me, Lord God. And on the authority of God's word and what I've seen him do in my own life, I'm telling you, he will. Well, this leads us to what we see in next, and that is an appreciation of God's word. Quickly, look at verse 10. He writes this, 10 through 11. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. Please don't miss this. This is next in your notes. The most precious thing you can desire on this planet that God has created is God and his word. The most precious thing you can desire in all of life is God and his word. Psalm 119.20 says, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. 
Do you hear the psalmist just crying out to God? I can't, God, but you can. Now look at full full confession here. Um, You know, I guess maybe it's some of my Italian blood that comes through and you got the waving and the raising of the voice. You don't have to do it like me. In, In fact, if you want an Italian to be quiet, just tie his hands together put him behind his back. Um, The how is not so much what I'm interested in here. In other words, you don't have to mimic me or mimic somebody else, but in your own way, the way God created you, whatever crying out to him looks like, maybe it's just through silent tears before him, but get before him and acknowledge your need of him and your need of his word. Your need of transformation, continued transformation, because remember, as we keep hearing, even in our study through Ecclesiastes, none of us have arrived. And we're one decision away from spiritual ruin, where where we make, uh, we, we step into it and we're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, Lord. No, we praise him for his grace and for his forgiveness, but I would spare you from the heartache of living a sinful life when all you needed to do was yield yourself to his word. So do you truly long for the word? Is it perfect? Is it sure? Is it right? Is it clean? Is it true? And it is. And if it is, Do you see it for what it truly is and desire it more than your own stuff, more than your own career, more than your own family, your own spouse, your own self? Do you long and desire God's word more than anything? That's where we need to be. That's, and listen, we're gonna fall short. Okay, full disclosure. Okay, here's the disclaimer in human life. You're not gonna arrive until you arrive. Well, when will I arrive? Anybody? When you get there, in glory, when he calls you home. But here's the promise. He's gonna call you home. He's coming back for us. That's good news. Now watch this. It's not merely in knowing the word that the blessing comes. Where is it? Hint, it's in verse 11. It's not merely in knowing it, it's in what? Doing it, that's right. It's, as he says, in keeping it. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so do deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so this brings us to our last point and that is the application of God's word. The awe inspired by his creation, the righteous fear impressed upon my heart, your heart when confronted with his word should stir up in us a humble cry of help, right? It should cause in us a desire to maintain a right relationship with the king of the universe who has revealed himself to both, revealed himself to us both in his creation and in his word. And that's what we see and find in verse 12. Look at it with me. Who can discern his errors? And now look at what he asks. Because he recognizes this. Lord, I struggle with this. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. What's he asking for? Justification, which can only come through him. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Again, let me... Quote um, our brother John Corson, who I think summarizes this well. Lord, show me my faults. Don't let me get away either with deliberate or secret sins. End quote. 
I think sometimes we rationalize our sin away, don't we? We do, if we're honest. And we come up with a whole bunch of lame excuses. And so here it is in your notes, what David is crying out for, God, you know my heart. Don't let me deceive myself. Don't let me deceive myself. Can I ask you a question? Are you willing to pray that? Have you come to the place in your walk in Christ where you regularly pray that because you realize that the heart is so desperately wicked? He closes with this beautiful, beautiful verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Did you notice the pivot there? It's also in your notes. Did you notice the pivot? It's not merely in stopping sin, but it's in living righteously. It's in living righteously. God alone is our rock and redeemer. And if he is our rock and if he is our redeemer, then life should look differently in our lives. If Jesus Christ is your rock and redeemer, that should define your life. It looks different. And the only, only the power of Christ can enable you and me to take captive our thoughts and rule our mouths as David is crying out for here. Two ways of knowing God. Two ways of knowing God. When the evidence of his created world is perceived and the evidence of his word is revealed. And so he says this, cause my meditation in your word and my meditation about you to be acceptable in your sight in order that I might have fellowship and intimacy with you. Oh, may that be our call. I'm reminded of a song and I'll, uh, I just wanna sing it over you. Um, I grew up listening to this song and it has always impacted me. And it's this last verse. Um, it goes sort of like this. Let the words of my mouth bring you praise. Let the words that I speak be seasoned with your love and grace. May the things, O oh Lord, that I choose to say Bring glory, not shame, to your name each day. May the words of my mouth bring you praise. May we be able to sing that. I ask you to bow your heads with me as I, John comes up to lead us in a closing song. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.